0: Good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture is Revelations 5, and it reads, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And as I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. They will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped.
1: God. Good morning. My name is Lydia. I'm one of the pastors here. Oh yeah, you can you can, you can, can leave it there. It's cool. <laughs> I am equipped. Um, yeah, I'm one of the pastors here. If you haven't got a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you. Um, I'm the pastor of kids and family specifically. Uh, but today I'm going to be talking about Revelation 5. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we know we've been making our way through this strange book. And here we go, onward and upward. It's Chapter five, it's starting to get strange. Um, But I wanted to start today with sort of a personal confession about myself. So I have this thing with quitting things. And don't worry, this is not me announcing my resignation. Um, I know I just started, so that would be really weird. Uh, But as many of my close friends know, I just tend to have this habit of sort of piecing out of things. Um, It's not super surprising because I'm an Enneagram seven and they're, if you know anything about the Enneagram, uh, which I know some of you do here, out here, um, they're notorious for quitting things. We love our freedom. Uh, when my boys used to play in a Saturday soccer league uh, and their games would get called off in the morning, like I would check my phone and be like, I think it's going to rain. And I would be like, yes, it's the best feeling in the world to have like newfound freedom. Probably doesn't make me the best parents, but there we are. Um, but while freedom is part of sometimes the reason behind me quitting things, a lot of the times that I would quit things is because I would fear that I wouldn't be able to do a good job at them. And so probably the first time I noticed this about myself was in college. Uh, And that's where I really started to feel most vulnerable. So I went to a big state school. I went to the University of Georgia um, after going to a really relatively small high school. And suddenly I no longer felt like I was the hot shot that I had been in my little small school. Um, so basically starting at that time, any situation where I would walk into a room where uh, there were expectations of me and people to impress, or people that I really admired that I want to impress, and then I felt unprepared in those situations, those situations began to be my living nightmare. Uh, and so this would result me in me dropping out of classes that even though I was making an A in, but I was just worried I was going to totally screw it up. Uh, the one class that sticks out in my mind, famously, it's one of the, the one that I have that recurring nightmare about, you know, um, is philosophy 2500, which was I was a philosophy major at the time. Uh, symbolic logic, if you know, if you're a philosophy person. So this one was the worst because this professor told us that he would deliberately pick out the, those of us in the class who looked the most nervous to come to the board and work problems in hopes that they would screw up in front of everyone else. Uh, so you can imagine me sitting there shaking a puddle of sweat, like, oh, I'm going to stick out quite obviously, you know? And so I was like, noped out of that very quickly, even though I was making an A in the class. Um, and then later in grad school, this would manifest in me um, because I was uh, Hebrew Bi- I was studying Hebrew Bible. I would memorize very large portions of the Old Testament because we would have to read it the next day aloud. And I was felt very inadequate in my reading skills because my co- colleagues had like gone to Harvard and like majored in ancient Semitic languages, and they just sounded beautiful reading them. And I was like nowhere near their level. And so I would memorize the night before these passages. And then, of course, the worst happened. My professor was like, you know what? Let's scrap reading from Ruth today. Let's look at Deuteronomy. And so the passage I had memorized was totally you know, I was unprepared. And so, of course, I read it and it sounded terrible and she corrected me and I felt humiliated. But I mean, she was doing her job, but this was like my worst nightmare, right? And so, whenever I would confide uh, in friends about this problem, they would, of course, tell me like, Lydia, you're so competent. That's just negative self-talk. Don't listen to that. Or if you're like my sweet husband in the front row, He'd be like, "Why are you dropping this class? You're getting an A. You're going to be completely irrational. That's my, my sweet husband. Um, but and they may have been right. like these are things I probably needed to hear, sure. Um, but I think there are probably a, you know and there's, there's probably a portfolio of reasons for why I acted the way I did, like ranging from how I was raised, my family of origin to like internalized misogyny or something like that. but I think that really what was the case was deep down I feared failure, right? Um, I did, and it wasn't because I thought that I'd be loved less if I failed. but It was just because I couldn't bear the thought of looking foolish in front of other people. So I could probably dress it up in a number of like cute ways or like, I don't know, ways that are less uncomfortable to admit, um, like I'm a perfectionist or something like that. But I think what it really comes down to is just good, old, good old-fashioned pride. Like pure and simple, that's really what it was about. So, when the shortcomings of my skill set or my intellect were on display publicly, um, it would ruin that perfectly curated image that I worked so hard at maintaining, right? This image of like a confident, competent, successful woman, right? And so, if I'm being honest with you, Those are things that, as if you know Richard Rohr, he calls them your shadow self. These are the things that my shadow self really deeply desired and craved. So your shadow self, if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's that part of yourself that uh, you really try to hide or pretend doesn't exist because it's kind of socially unacceptable. And as most of our society would probably find it like pretty embarrassing to walk around declaring how much you want others to find you like a huge success, Uh, I keep that desire pretty well hidden, um, even in myself, to a degree. Now, don't get me wrong. It's perfectly fine to want to be, like, competent or confident in your job. Like, I think those are things we ought to strive for, right? Um, But I know for me, and probably for many of us in this room, especially for, like, many Americans, uh, those desires for those particular traits are, like, completely out of whack, Right? They're out of balance. And they're certainly out of whack for someone who claims the way of Jesus as sort of the centering force of their life. How do I know this? How do I know it's completely out of whack for me? Well, I thought about it, and I've probably spent more nights awake replaying moments of my head of, like, perceived humiliation uh, and just, like, cringing over them internally than I have spent moments awake thinking about the moments where I've missed opportunities of being compassionate to someone, um, where I've been unloving or unkind. And so I'm more bothered by looking foolish than the ways that I've been inattentive to the needs of others. And that's not right. That's off, (laughs) right? But what does any of this have to do with Revelation 5? Great question. Thank you for bringing me back to task. I promise this is not going to be a half-hour journey into the emotional health of Lydia, as entertaining as that might be for all of us. uh you know, the reason I offer up this sort of rather personal example in light of our text today is because I think that I, like many other Christians, often live, as author and pastor uh, Pete Scazzaro says, we often live Christ-centered lives, but not cross-centered lives. Now, what does that mean? Like, what's the difference? Sounds clever. It means that, While I'm so happy for Jesus to be my Messiah, to think of him as the savior of the world, as the miracle worker, the one who victoriously rose from the grave, that's, I'm on board with that. That's great. That's the Jesus I'm, I'm cool with. But then when I live my life, I do all I can to avoid the way of the cross, the way of the slaughtered lamb. I avoid weakness. I avoid suffering. I avoid humiliation as much as I possibly can. So, Schizero, this author that I've been reading, I've been going through his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, which I commend to you. He talks about this in regards to the character of Peter. And you remember that that's, uh, part of Matthew where Jesus is telling his disciples, he's like, Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die, and I'm gonna go to the cross, and then I'm gonna be raised again. And then you remember Peter's reaction here? He rebukes Jesus, and he's like, No, Lord, we can't, that cannot be. And then Jesus answers him back rather harshly, and he says, if you remember very famously, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human things. And I always feel so bad for Peter here, right? Like, I'm like, gosh, Jesus, like, he's just showing you how much, like, how deeply he loves you, right? This is his way of conveying that. Like, why you gotta be so harsh? Why do you gotta take that tone with Peter? But, Jesus gets so upset with Peter here because he's really missing it. I don't know if that's ever happened to you with a friend where, uh, like, a, fr- a very close friend has gotten something very wrong about you that you're like, this is central to who I am. Like, I am obviously a dog person. Why are you, why are you offering me cats? Or something like that, you know? And it's like, how do we, how do we claim friendship at all? But Jesus, much more seriously, to Peter... Is like, if you don't get how the cross is so central to who I am, what I'm about, then you don't understand me, let alone love me, or can claim to follow me. Which is why Jesus follows up his strong rebuke of Peter with a word of caution to any who would claim to follow him. So Jesus kind of, like, if you remember this scene in Matthew, he, like, turns his guns from Peter and is, like, talks to us more generally and is, like, if any of you would become my followers, let them deny myself or deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So while it's great to claim Jesus and to believe he died and rose victoriously to conquer death, hell and the grave, all that's great. But what Jesus here in Matthew, certainly Paul in all of his letters, And what John here in Revelation 5 wants us so desperately not to miss is that the cross, the way of the slaughtered lamb, is the central way that we understand God and the central way that we understand how to live as Christ followers. I'll say it again because I think it's up here. Yes. The cross, the way of the slaughtered lamb, is the central way that God reveals himself to us and the central way that we're to understand how to live as those who claim to follow him. Apart from this vision of the Lamb, we, like Peter, miss the point entirely. Peter's understanding of who Jesus was in this moment, despite literally walking around with him day in, day out, right, was based more on a political notion of a Messiah, right? That's who he conceived of. But he definitely didn't involve his method of rescue, As, like, a shameful, humiliating death. That did not, that was not on Peter's radar at all. And so, if Peter can miss it, we Christians too, despite maybe our church attendance, heck, despite our daily reading of Scripture, we can surely miss it too. Because we too often find ourselves following an uncrucified Jesus, if we're honest. We live from a faith that is set up intentionally. To avoid taking up our crosses. I know that's true of me. But you may be wondering, like, hold up. <laughs> I know Jesus died, but he did resurrect, and that was kind of important, right? Like, that does matter. That's a key part of the story. Absolutely, it, it is. It mattered, and it matters. I am an N.T. Wright fangirl, and he wrote literally the book on resurrection, and I am all about it. Resurrection is very important. Um, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith is in vain. So yes. And yet, this doesn't stop Paul from like almost obsessively referring to Christ as the crucified Christ. Because if you read Paul long enough, it's pretty unmistakable that he is obsessed with the cross. Like he really can't talk about Jesus for very long without bringing up the cross. And the way even that Paul talks about the cross. is not this sort of like one-time thing with Jesus that he did in history a long time ago, but something that continues to define him um, and define and shape who he is and how we understand him. I'm not going to get super nerdy on you, but hang in there, just bear with me. When Paul talks about Christ crucified in various passages in the New Testament, the verb tense, told you, stay with me, the verb tense he uses in the Greek is it one that expresses like completed action? That would be the aorist tense. If you want to drop that knowledge bomb at your next dinner party, um, but that aorist tense is sort of this one and done, right? Like over and over and done with, completed action. But instead, he uses the perfect participle. Again, sorry for this Greek grammar lesson. But it's interesting because it's something that you would use to express continuing significance, right? or a continuing result. So Jesus' resurrection, it doesn't cancel out his crucifixion. The cross will forever primarily shape how we understand Jesus, and this is the way that we're supposed to view him. This is the central way we view him. And this was crazy for Paul to be so hung up on this. It's actually really hard for us to us, like, fully comprehend um, how strange this was for him to do, because the cross for us now has become this super elevated cultural symbol. Like even if you aren't a Christian, like crosses are associated with like beautiful stained glass and beautiful architecture all over the world, right? But back in Paul's time, there was no greater symbol of shame and humiliation than the cross. And you've probably heard, it's been said a lot, that like, you know, the crucifixion was the most like, it was the type of death reserved for criminals and for slaves. Um, so then think of being a Christian walking around the Roman Empire and, like, all the dominant culture, your friends, your neighbors, like, their deities are, peop- are like, Jupiter, <laughs> who's literally, like, throwing thunderbolts, or, like, Hercules, you know, the god of strength. And then your god? Like, your god not only died at the hands of Rome, but, like, a really embarrassing death of that. So he's not really the ideal mascot when he's up against like trident-wielding gods, right? So my middle son, Abe, who's 10, um, went through a real big like Greco-Roman, Greek mythology kick last year, thanks to the Percy Jackson books that he like devoured. Um, and I, remo- I remember when we moved here, or we were thinking about moving here last year, we were driving around Salt Lake City and getting, kind of like envisioning what life would look like to live here. And so we were looking at different schools. And I kept thinking, you know, oh, this would be this mascot. This would be what, you know, Abe would be. Um, And so we passed by one, and it was the Spartans. And I was like, oh, yeah, Abe would love to go to school here. He'd love to be like, I'm a Spartan. And then we drove by one school, and the mascot was the Beet Diggers. (laughs) And I was like, I can't imagine how disappointed he would be if I was like, Abe, you're going to be a Beet Digger. Uh, And I I still don't really understand that mascot fully. I'm sure there's an agricultural, like, backstory behind that. But I was, like, at the time, I was, like, is this, like, a Dwight Schrute reference or something? Uh, I don't know what's going on. But just as no reasonable person would ever choose, like, a beet digger as their, like, mascot of, like, power, no no reasonable person would ever have chosen a god whose main way of representation was shame and humiliation. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Alexa Minos graffiti or graffito. It's arguably the first depiction of Jesus ever. I'm not really sure if that's true, Um, but we can pull it up. This is this image, this uh, graffiti, this ancient graffiti. It was discovered in Rome, um, and uh, yeah, it's literally just a bit of graffiti that they found. And they're not quite sure what the exact date is. It's somewhere between like the first and third century, so somewhere kind of in the time period that we're talking about right now. Um, But what they do have consensus is, is that this is making fun of Christians. That's what this graffiti is. So it's a picture of a man, and this is the, like, cleaned up version so you can see it. This is a man, uh, presumably Alexamenos, worshipping this donkey-headed figure, uh, and he's being crucified. And the writing roughly translates to Alexamenos worshipping his god. And we know that Christians uh, were mocked for worshiping a crucified God uh, because the idea of a suffering God was just utter nonsense to the dominant culture. They couldn't wrap their head around it. It was ridiculous. Uh, Marcus Cornelius Fronto, a second century Roman order, and he was a uh, sort of a disciple of Marcus Aurelius, he wrote that the religion of the Christians is foolish inasmuch as they worship a crucified man and even the instrument itself of his punishment. So they were like, couldn't get their minds around a God that would suffer and die. And this whole like alignment, this impression that Christians like worship the the cross themselves, like that's how important of a symbol it was to, to, uh, to Christians at the time. And so we can better understand why Paul in 1 Corinthians wrote that, Christ crucified is utter foolishness to the Gentiles. It's kind of all makes, kind of all comes together, right? And so, poor Peter was not the last person who was going to struggle with this incongruity of the nature of Jesus, right? It was someone who, as Eugene Peterson says, he talked like a king and he acted like a slave. That was hard enough to understand, but then to have to swallow that he was going to die. And not just any death, but a really shameful death, the death of a loser. It really made no sense whatsoever. It's a paradox. And so words al- alone are really insufficient to, like, explain that this victorious Lord is also the slaughtered lamb. And this is why we need the poetry and the imagination of Revelation, right? Right? So when you find yourself asking, like, why does Revelation have to be so darn weird? Like, can't it just be more straightforward that would make it so much easier? This is why. Because it just makes no logical sense. And this is why John has to lay it out for us in this, like, very bizarre vision that we find in Revelation 5. And it's, it's because we, it's not that we, already, we don't know all this about Jesus. We already have all the information, right? It's the last book in the New Testament. We've got it. There's nothing more to be said. But poetry, which is the genre we have here, as one poet put it, isn't an examination of of things that happen. It's an immersion in what happens. And so what John wants to do here is he wants to immerse us in what happens. So because this is such a fascinating scene, we should really just, it it bears, it's worthy of repetition. So let's retell what happens in Revelation 5. So We're still in the same setting as chapter 4, if you recall, if you've been following along with us. And so we're looking via the vision of John at the heavenly throne room, right? So previously, John's focus had been all the worship that was taking place around him. It's this behind-the-scenes glimpse of heaven. Um, The creator God is being worshipped on the throne by the four creatures and the 24 elders. They're They're noting his holiness. They're noting the fact that he's created things and he sustains all things by his power. And John is transfixed by the scene, but then suddenly his, shifts, his uh, focus shifts to this scroll, and that's where we begin in chapter 5. And so he notices the scroll that's in the right hand of God who's sitting on the throne. Now the scroll would have evoked several things to this original audience, which is helpful to know for us. Um, it would have evoked the law, so the Torah, the Ten Commandments, which is God's plan for how he wants his people to live, In order to flourish right and the consequences and the violations like what happens when that goes wrong it would have also evoked the prophets as well which is another way that the people heard the will of God through the mouthpiece of the Old Testament prophets and what would happen if they didn't straighten up and it would have also evoked other sort of Jewish apocalyptic texts. but the main idea was that it would evoke a plan it would be God's plan to fix the world to put the world back to the way it was. it was. It was a symbol of restoration. And of course, this would include judgment. But what is so upsetting to John is that at first it seemed that no one was worthy to read it. And that's a little strange, we're like, well, why? But it seemed like no one would be worthy to open it. And he gets very upset about this. He starts to weep, in fact, because how can the work be done? How can we begin this plan to fix the world if no one's worthy to open it up and show us how it's done? We can't get started. And so it looks like all hope is lost. And this is why he weeps. But then, as you remember, if you may remember in the reading, one of the elders says to John, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And it's important here to pause for a moment and, like, on this lion imagery and this root of David imagery because if we don't really know the reference, we're going to, like, We're going to miss out on one of the biggest plot twists. Or, as the author of my New Testament uh, textbook in seminary, whose name, by the way, was Dr. Boring, but that aside, (laughs) he calls it, and this is a lot, I guess, coming from someone named Boring, he called it, this moment, the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. So that's a big claim, right? So let's not miss it. If we don't know our Old Testament references, It's going to fly right over our head. So it reminds me of the scene from The Office. Um, I've thought about this before in other other situations, but if you remember, uh, Andy Bernard is in uh, the musical Sweeney Todd, and the whole office goes to see him in Sweeney Todd. And uh, so they're sitting there. Michael, Scott, and Daryl are sitting there in the front row before it gets started. And you know know your musicals. They play that musical overture at the beginning. And so Michael starts to talk to (laughs) Daryl, and Daryl, who apparently is a huge theater nerd, uh, he shushes him and he says, shh, if we don't listen to the overture, we're gonna we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. And I've always loved that scene, just because the idea of Daryl being a musical theater buff is just I don't know, gives me life. But, in the same way if we don't get this reference, we're gonna just miss what Dr. Boring calls the most, you know, life-changing moment in literature, so let's not miss it. So, What is this lion lion imagery? What is this Root of David reference? So this announcement would have been a huge cause for relief and and celebration uh, to those who heard it. This Root of David language came from texts like Isaiah 11, which during the first century was interpreted as the coming of the Messiah. So this warrior savior whose lineage boasted David, the ultimate warrior king, right? Right? He was going to come back and he was going to kick butt but like in a righteous way in the best way and so if we read from isaiah 11 they're describing this this root of david so i, I have it up so it kind of it starts a shoot shall come out of the stump of jesse with, that's this version's translation of that but if you skip down it says he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear so unlike the corrupt judges and kings from the past he's incorruptible also, this is nice to tuck away for later when we hear about a certain lamb who has seven perfect eyes and seven perfect horns. It's a little strange, but keep this, this verse tucked away from that moment. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So he's on the side of the oppressed. He's on the side of the marginalized. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Again, this is who they're anticipating, right? This righteous warrior. And then the lion imagery. So this dates back all the way to Genesis 49, which you may remember, maybe it's been a minute, Jacob is offering a prophetic blessing on his sons, one of whom is Judah. And he describes Judah as a lion that no one would dare to provoke because he's so fierce, And he promises him the scepter, meaning that he, or at least his descendants, a.k.a. David, a.k.a. David's descendants, i.e. Jesus, would rule and reign. And lions were the most frequently used uh, animal metaphor for, for God in the Old Testament. They symbolized power, and they symbolized a threat. Like, don't mess with me. So again, like the warrior king in Isaiah... Or Aslan in the Narnia stories, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. Lions aren't safe, but they're good. And so this is the image they're expecting. This righteous warrior, the Messiah who, like a lion, no one would dare to mess with, and he's going to be on our side. And so this is the moment, like quite literally, this is the one we've all been waiting for. Like from the beginning, from Genesis basically on, we've been promised that this is someone who's going to come and he's not going to stand for it anymore. Things have been so wrong for such a long time, like from the very beginning, God's people have been on the receiving end of oppression, like basically from the get-go, right? Exodus, they were enslaved under Egypt, they were enslaved by Assyria, Babylon, on and on and on. Now here here we are in the Roman Empire, things haven't changed, right? We've been kicked in the teeth by various evil empires, and finally, finally, we're going to get some justice right? And so this is what they're thinking and feeling at that moment when they hear, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's conquered, like the tables have turned. And then John turns to look, and his eyes are met with a very different image than what his ears had heard with relief. So this is that pivotal moment that Dr. Boring was describing, because he doesn't see a warrior king. He doesn't see a ferocious lion. In fact, he doesn't see anything that he was anticipating at all, but instead he sees a slaughtered lamb. So this lion imagery has been remixed into this kind of like little lamb. Even the word for it isn't like a full adult lamb, it's kind of like, a little cute lamb. It's really, really vulnerable, very weak looking upon appearance. And so this is such a dramatic moment In fact, it's so dramatic that John has reserved even talking about a lamb until this moment, and from here on out, it's going to be the primary way that he describes, uh, that he refers to Christ, the first of 29 times, in fact. This scene, like like so much of the book of Revelation, has been mishandled and misinterpreted uh, throughout its interpretive history. But chapter 4 and chapter 5, are, as Dr. Gorman says, if you've been reading uh, along with us or were in the class last week, he says these chapters are the hermeneutical key to the rest of the book. Meaning this is the prime, This is, if we miss this, we miss it all. If we don't read the rest of, Re- of Revelation through this lens of the slaughtered lamb, we're going to veer way off course into like pretty dangerous territory, actually. Because we... So desperately want a God who comes in and rules with the power that we want to yield. A power that controls and dominates, oppresses, uses violence. That's power how, on our terms, how we understand it. But what happens here is very different. That power is redefined. The power takes the shape of a slaughtered lamb who then takes the scroll, and remember, He's got the seven horns and the seven eyes, as Isaiah said, which means he's going to rule with perfect wisdom and understanding. He's going to hear clearly. He's going to see clearly. And he conquers, not with the power of the lion, but with that same power that Jesus showed Rome when he stood there under the shame and humiliation of the state, when he endured the pain and the shame of the cross. It's in that dying that he conquers, As with everything in the kingdom of God, God's notion of conquering is completely upside down from the world's notion of conquering. Even though it wasn't what anyone was expecting, it was God's plan all along, not to overcome the world with a display of force, but through the suffering and the death of Jesus. Uh, I have this Eugene Peterson quote because I think he just kind of says it perfectly. So the forms under which the Christ conquers are the Palm Sunday, Sunday donkey, the slain Paschal Lamb, and the failed Messiah, mocked and crucified. It is precisely these forms that are realized in faith as conquering. The means Christ has chosen to accomplish his will and work out his salvation are in fact, and against appearances, victorious. This is what this victory looks like. And this is the cool thing. We aren't just passive recipients of all of this we're actually invited into this work so as the elders and the creatures sing in verse 10 they say you have made them this is us people from everywhere all over you have made them into a kingdom and priests serving our god and they will reign on earth so this scroll that the lamb will open the plan to restore this world we have a role to play in that mission that gets me excited. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I'm like, yes, amen. So then if this is God's definition of power, if the slaughtered lamb, the crucified Christ, is how God reveals himself to us, and this is the model of how we are to live, and we are to join him in, on, join him in this work, what does following in the way of the lamb look like? What does that kind of conquering look like? So I don't know what that looks like in your life, but maybe I can tell you what it looks like in mine and you can kind of take it from there. So for me, going back to what I told you and confessed at the beginning, rather than avoiding opportunities because I don't want to look like a failure or foolish at all costs, I need to step into those moments more. I need to lean into the potential to fail, to screw up more. So rather than entering a room, looking for opportunities that I can impress, I need to enter enter the room looking for opportunities to learn, to listen, and to be okay with admitting, like, I don't know. I'm unprepared. (laughs) Uh, Richard Rohr says in his book, Falling Upward, he says, I have prayed for years for one good humiliation a day, and then I watch my reaction to it. (laughs) How about that for your morning prayer? That seems a little risky. No pressure if that's not how you want to start your Monday tomorrow. I get it. But it's a great way, he says, to really get a sense of what your internal motivations are. So if you're not sure what is preventing you from living from the cross, living in that way, maybe try paying attention to your emotional reactions to situations or to people. That's a good place to start because our bodies can tell us a great deal about our inner selves. We ignore that a lot, but they are very informative, very insightful. So you can be like, why am I shaking with rage right now? Or like, why is this situation making me so nervous? Or like, why can't I quit thinking about what that person said to me on Wednesday? Why is that so important? Why is that like completely taking up so much real estate in my thoughts right now? Or why does it matter so much what this person thinks of me? simply pay attention to those moments and then invite the spirit in to ask what Jesus asked in Matthew are you picking up your cross are you trying to attempt to save your life by yourself cuz our temptation will always be to tri- try to live our lives out of our own sad strength our weak efforts like so many of us in this room if I were to ask you like what do you want what do you want to do with your life you would probably say like i want to change the world or I, want to make, I want to make life a little better, the world a better place. And then we go, to, we go about that, trying our hardest by leading out of our own strength. And we think, we think things like, okay, don't screw up because no one's going to want to follow someone who makes mistakes. Or they say, don't admit you're wrong because no one will listen to you if you admit failure. Don't listen to others because you need to look like you know what you're talking about. You need to look like you have the answers. And, as you may have learned already, that only gets us so far. Because the irony is that we work so hard at maintaining these images of ourselves, building these people up, these images that we want to create to show to the world. We do that, and then we deprive ourselves of that deep, transformative work that the Lord really wants to do in us. And then when that happens, it spills out into the lives around us. And it's a really powerful thing. And it can't be faked, and it can't be replicated. It's all the power of the Spirit. And so we deprive ourselves of that opportunity, and we try to do it on our own. But we're invited to be on mission with God in this work. If only we, like Jesus, can lay it all down. If We win by, we win by losing. We save by giving up. We conquer by dying. So, before we come to the Lord's table together, would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess to you that so often we live in such a way that avoids the cross, the way of the slaughtered lamb. That as much as we can, we can control it. We avoid looking weak, we avoid discomfort, we avoid grief, we avoid looking like failures as much as we possibly can because. This is what we've been conditioned by the world to do. But you never promised us a life free of any of those things. Instead, you gave us the symbol of the cross, which by all appearances looks like losing. It looks like utter foolishness to the world. But in fact, it's the power of God. Lord, all glory and honor and power belong to you, Jesus. Thank you that your power looks so different from the world's. It's very hard for for us to understand, but keep teaching us, Jesus. Keep showing us. In your name, we ask all these things. Amen. Messiah, when you're ready, you can come to the table in the center. There's gluten-free options at the far end. And if you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be people on the side who would love to pray with you. So come when you're ready.